0: Yes, of course. Burl (laughs) Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Whoa! Live with the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com. Nestled in a secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. And I don't know where we are. following program produced... By Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am legendary Burl Bear, and sitting over there, as Mark Boyer, our fact checker and co host. And on the phone, a living legend of investigative journalism and smart ass remarks, Dennis McDougall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what
1: are you going to
0: do? I'm yeah, so. Uh, hey! Yeah, and according to your publicity, uh, you've written at least 12 books hundreds of newspaper and magazine articles, many of which were actually published. (laughs) (laughs) And then you went went looking for Hemingway's suitcase. Is that a true story, this thing about Hemingway's suitcase? Or did you make that up? That he had a suitcase with a novel in it?
2: Well, I mean, the lost suitcase is uh, a true life adventure, but Uh, What happened to it is uh, anybody's guess, and I use that as the premise for uh, a novel. So, uh, yeah, he did, in fact, lose his suitcase and thought that his entire career was over at age 21. Oh, no. And uh, his wife uh, slapped him in the the face, sort of like Cher slapped Nicolas Cage in the face and moonstruck and said, snap out of it. And then he went and, uh, and wrote um, The Sun Also
0: Rises. Well, that's good, because the guy in that story couldn't.
1: <laughs> so I'm glad
2: you yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I, um, I've written 15 books now, and I'm working on my 16th. How about
0: that? Well, well, well according to this the publicity, because uh, you've got to update that. So uh, after, after you wrote Dylan, another, yeah. uh, which I bet Dylan was thrilled with that book
2: um well not a lot but um (laughs) did you ever get any word on that well it is going to be uh on sale in the gift shop at the dylan center in tulsa oklahoma when it opens next month really
0: yes i mean of all the dylan books all the dylan books going to be available or just yours
2: well, I don't know about the others. All I know is that I contacted my publisher, and he said that he was going to make sure that they got a shipment. Now, whether they just them and actually sell them, that remains to be seen.
0: Because I mean, your Dylan bio book is the only one I've read that begins with Dylan on heroin crashing a van. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it does. It is unique in that fashion. Yeah, um, I've
0: never read a book that begins with Dylan on heroin crashing a Man. Yeah, event. I don't, I, I,
2: I don't, um, I, I don't think that any of the others, and there are many, um, could. Uh, uh,
0: I won't ask you your source on that, but I assume, being as you are an ethical journalist, you did have a source, a reliable source, on that story.
2: Well, I will reveal for the first time on this program that I did indeed have a source. Uh, he was a roadie at the time, and um, he is my stepson.
0: Whoa! Ho, ho. Ah. Ah. So you did have the inside <clears throat> track, so to speak. Nepotism <laughs> at its best. Yep. And that could give oh. nepotism a bad name, oh, you Oh, know?
2: girl, you, you're such a clever soul. I, guess, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if your listeners got that or not, but he said inside track. Yeah, that's right. That's called a double entendre.
0: Yes, it is. Yes, I remember yeah. her. Yeah. I do too. Jennifer. Yeah, Yeah, my Yeah, mayo.
2: well, uh, so, um, yeah, since um, Dylan, I, um, I wrote another little tongue, published, I don't know, about a year or so ago, year and a half, uh, called Operation White Rabbit.
0: Yeah, we had you on the show about that one. That was a
2: cool book. Anybody buy it? Thank you very much. Uh, Well, uh, apparently some people bought it because... Uh, I get royalty checks, which
0: is kind of an anomaly these days. Yeah, no, hell, you're right. You're right telling the truth on that one. There is oh, nothing yeah. wrong with mailbox money.
2: That's right. going to knock me over
0: with a feather. Yeah. Anyway, hey, I'm, um, I'm still getting checks from McFarland for the book I wrote in, 2000, no, in 1993, 92, yeah. Yeah, they're, what, 45 I mean, cents or less? No, no,
2: I get but, but isn't, money. But isn't that weird, though? I mean, that... Uh, I, mean, I, I guess that's one of the, the benefits of being um, uh, low-level, mid-list authors like, uh, like we are, uh, because these books come out, they, uh, they assume that they're not going to sell at all, and then ever so often they sell like crazy after the fact, and we actually get royalty checks. I know. Now, I know for a fact that all of these big name authors who get big advances never earn out their advances.
0: Of course ever. not. Never.
2: So they never see a royalty check. They don't know what it is. But we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Even if it's only nine ninety five dollars and a fruit chewy.
0: Yeah. Actually, it was close to 100 bucks this time. I was very impressed. Uh,
2: Congratulations,
0: Cole. Yeah, well, the big surprise was my first book for Kensington, The Murder in the Family. Uh, yeah. I mean, how often does a paperback true crime book hit the New York Times bestseller list? <laughs> Everyone was in a state of shock, including the publisher. We ran out of books, but at least we made it to the New York Times bestseller list. And that, and I,
2: still- I think that's, uh, that's- that is an incredibly cool story, and I'm happy that it happened to you.
0: Yeah, so am I. <laughs> because I still get money in the mail.
2: <laughs> have you uh, have you turned it into a, a, a docu drama or a podcast yet?
0: Oh, I've turned it into just about everything I could think of. You know, the great thing was that that big as that was, uh, two thousand. They didn't have uh, e-books yet, so we got an e-book right. deal with Wild Blue Press, uh, and they put it out, and they made money all over again, which I still do every month. So, uh,
2: yeah, I've I had the Janice. same experience with uh, Open Road Media. I, yeah. I wrote um, I wrote Mother's Day and um, Blood Cold like twenty years ago, and you know they sold all right. They were it was respectable, but then. Uh, everything just kind of died off as it always does and went away. And then Open Road Media calls my agent about four years ago and says, "Uh, we'd like to republish uh, these books that he wrote. And I said, sure, why not? And I gotta tell you, I, I have earned more money off of Mother's Day than any other book I have ever published. Really? Yeah. It's like, I don't know who, who it is out there in middle America who is buying it, but somebody is buying it hands over, hand over fist.
0: And what is the plot and, of Mother's Day, do I ask?
2: Well, the elevator line is um, uh, Mother's Day is the story of a Sacramento mother who um, conscripted her two sons. ...to help her murder and dispose of the bodies of her two daughters. What? That's really yeah. sick. Well, it's, um, unfortunately, it's true.
0: Well, that's why they call it true crime. And why well, I did that's, the uh, lovely offspring I think you struck
2: upon something here.
0: Yeah. What was the motive?
2: Uh, Well, uh, if you peel back all of the Freudian um, onion skins, you get down to jealousy. Uh, Both of her daughters, um, whom she turned out by the time they were teenagers, uh, were rivals to the mother in her pursuit of uh, yet another male meal ticket. So she saw fit to do them in rather than um, let them uh, take her, her lovers away from her.
0: Whoa. And her sons went along with this plan?
2: Well, they, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that they... I'm not sure that either, either of them, both of whom have spoken with me extensively, uh, did it voluntarily. But, you know, this shows the um, uh, the scope of the mother's love and control of her offspring.
0: Well, that's very similar. Maybe they should put your book and my book, Mom Said Kill, in a package together. Because in that book, the mother tells her 14-year-old daughter she'll buy her a brand new dirt bike if she and her little friends will murder her employer. Did they get the dirt bike? No, the kid never got the dirt bike. Oh, man. But she did get about 50 years in prison. Tra- oh, I hate to hear stories like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. Kid didn't get the dirt bike. Well, don't, isn't there a dichotomy there? Without these horrific stories, you guys wouldn't have a job. You know, that's the tragic story right there.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not sure that's necessarily true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because we write other kinds of books. Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm, route, I'm route running, of crime my current, my current project is uh, a biography of the uh, casino maven, Steve Wynn.
0: Oh, that should be fascinating. Uh, did well, you, he doesn't
2: seem to think, to think, think so, but...
0: Um, <laughs> he doesn't think so? Are you going
2: to write about the Wynn girls? Uh, Well, I'm going to be writing about many wind girls and and the various uh, wind acrobatics uh, that um, involved being a wind chorus girl during his um, his uh, heyday in in Vegas.
1: Yeah, my my sister's middle son, my nephew, that's worked for uh, wind. Went during the gold, the Nugget period. Uh, He was a genuinely nice guy, and they played golf.
2: Who was a genuinely nice guy? Your your nephew, Steve Wynn. Steve Wynn was a a, a genuinely nice guy to my nephew. Ah, that's nice of him. I would be uh, very suspicious of your nephew.
1: <laughs> Maybe, Maybe my nephew did. wasn't high enough on the food chain for him to make a difference.
2: Or he may have been, um, you know, of a uh, woman like persuasion in terms of um, his attitude towards the fair sex.
1: Ah, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know that, since he's a guy. Uh, it's possible. I uh, like what. The, the, <laughs> what, <laughs> what what attracts you to uh, the what character-driven autobiography? I'm
2: sorry. What attracts me to what sort of biography? The, the
1: character-driven
0: autobiography. Or biography it wouldn't be an autobiography. It would be a biography.
1: Yeah, because. Uh, the individuals you write about are definitely characters.
2: Well, uh, I've always been attracted, at least in that part of my my writing persona, I've always been attracted to uh, power and money. I believe that people who epitomize power and money in our culture... Um, are uh, emblematic of that which most people aspire to. And I think that there's probably, if you look hard enough, a morality tale to be told when you uh, approach anybody who makes a hell of a lot of money and exercises a hell of a lot of power.
0: That's true. Like the L.A. Times guy.
2: Like the LA Times guy. I mean, Otis Chandler was, um, no, I don't know. I mean, in, in the end, though, uh, with Otis Chandler, it, it, it was kind of sad. I mean, the weird thing is, you know, and, bro, you would, you, you, you would, um, get this, and, and it's proven true once again with Steve Wynn, I've come to, uh, appreciate. The working title of the book by uh, by the way is Citizen Win. Um, now, Orson Wells and Mankowitz got it right seventy years ago with Citizen who came. These people, these individuals who operate in the capitalist capitalistic system and make Billions of bucks and operate in uh, a, an atmosphere that makes you and I look like uh, the Pipers that we are, uh, they're all fatally flawed. And you can usually figure it out by going back to their childhoods. They all have a, a rosebud somewhere in the background.
0: What do you you think the rosebud is
2: with Dylan? Oh, wow. Um, Well, I think that Dylan had a difficult relationship with his father. His father was a hard-charging Jew um, who moved into a a totally uh, Gentile... Um, Midwestern town, and uh, and sustained crippling injuries injuries to himself when he was probably in his late thirties that he never really recovered from. So you know, Dylan watched his father uh, disintegrate before his very eyes, Ooh. and didn't want that to happen to himself, obviously. Right. So when he had a chance, uh, he he got the hell out of Minnesota, moved to New York City, and never looked back. And I think that his whole life has been um, kind of motivated by trying to not necessarily become his father, but um, but trying to to make the world fit his father's idea, his idealistic idea of what it ought to be.
0: Well, that's admirable.
2: Well, it is admirable. I mean, I, I think it's terribly admirable. Um, but then he had his own problems going the way, and, and especially when it, when it came to dealing with women.
0: Yeah. Now, I have a question, and you raised this question uh, about Dylan in the little promo piece for the book. That is, 20-some years ago, he seemed like he was on the, uh, uh, the fast track to oblivion. Uh, I saw him uh, live at that time period. And it was uh, like he was sleepwalking through the greatest hits and off the stage. It was like uh, Elvis has left the building before he was even on stage. Right. And then uh, I saw him a couple years ago, and he was fantastic. And I listened, right. listened to uh, his performance just a week or so ago, on uh, his first show here in the United States on his uh, never-ending tour, Rough and Rowdy yeah. Ways. And his performance, vocal performance, is absolutely fantastic. He isn't just doing the songs. He's performing the songs. He's selling the songs. Every line that he does, you can hear him invested in it.
2: Totally. I am so, so glad to hear that from you, bro. Because I bought tickets in in the front row for his... um Uh, his show in in Memphis at the Orpheum next month, Uh, and in anticipation of just that, because on the one hand, he's 80 years old, uh, and in a way, he probably sees this as his last hurrah, but uh, beyond that, you know, and it does, in fact, go back all, all the way to to that point in the early 90s when he was hooked on heroin and he was not even phoning it in. He was, like, you know, uh, writing it on a, um, uh, on a um, blackboard and swimming it in.
0: Yeah. Uh but so what what happened? happened what there. what caused the transformation? I mean, he went from being like walking death to being more alive and vibrant than he was twenty years ago.
2: All right, I will tell you, and it, it is in my book, but I will I'll repeat it for you and your and your audience. Uh, two words, Jerry Garcia. Really, mm, keep on trucking. When Jerry Garcia died. Of an overdose, that was like a wake-up call to Dylan, because he worshipped Jerry Garcia. Really? Oh, yeah. And up to that point, you know, he was pretty much checked out. He'd show up for the show. The never-ending tour had already begun, so he was obligated to be there.
1: I spent a few... uh about a month and a half traipsing around uh, California Um, when I was uh, at the, you know, after high school ended that summer. Right. I actually was wandering around and hitch a ride with whoever had a car to the next spot. It was
2: a weird couple of weeks. To see well, what, you can imagine how that, weird it was that. over a longer period of time for Dylan himself.
0: So that, so he, what, Kick the heroin and started doing MDMA instead?
2: Well, I think that when when Garcia died, I think it was a, like a wake-up call for Dylan. He produced a couple of albums in that period that were uh, totally old-style folk songs, Right, I got from it. A, yeah. From the Carl Sandburg, uh, you know, American music book. And, uh, and that was like the prelude to probably the very best album that he has ever done since Blood on the Tracks, which is Time Out of Mind. Right. And Time Out of Mind essentially set the tone for the Dylan that we have come to know uh, since the mid-90s to the present day. Time Out of Mind is a masterpiece. If you go back and listen to it, there's not a bad cut on the album, not one.
0: And yet he says mathematically, It doesn't quite work right for him, (laughs) mathematically. (laughs) Whatever the hell that means. (laughs) Uh Whatever the hell that means.
2: It doesn't work for him what? How?
0: Mathematically.
2: Mathematically? Yeah. Well, I don't know. What do you mean by mathematically?
0: Damned if I know, that's Dylan. You tell me. I don't know. But it is an incredible album. But I'll tell you, if the show he gives you when you go see him live is anything like what I heard on his debut show of his American tour, you are in for a treat.
2: I believe it. I absolutely believe it. You know, my my friend uh, Bill Pagel has been keeping track of his uh, set list on Facebook and um Every cut that uh, he delivers or he's been delivering on stage is exactly what I would have asked for. It's, uh, you know, uh, probably the keynote song in everything that he does on stage at the present time is, um, is the... Uh, Uh, the refrain from Walt Whitman about uh, multitudes.
0: Yeah, I contain multitudes.
2: And I think that is absolutely true. Yeah. Which brings up... I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about it, so you're going to have to put up with it anyway, so you might as well talk about it. All right, and well, let's is, talk, uh, about <clears throat> is, me his, talk about it. That is his song, uh, Mother Most Foul, which wow. came right smack dab in the middle of the pandemic and continues to resonate with me every time I listen to it. I mean, essentially it's a tone poem about the assassination of JFK. And you know, the weird thing, Burl, is that uh, I'm not sure that um, a generation behind you and and me would clearly understand what that, that song is all about. Well, it
0: seemed to but be to Dylan, cover a no. hell of a lot more territory than the assassination of JFK. It seemed to cover yeah. the whole social, socio-political, cultural evolution of the, uh, the society since that time.
2: Absolutely, and that's why that uh, that's why it hit. I mean, it, it, it hit me like like a, a lightning bolt because, you know. All of us of that generation remember where we were, exactly what we were doing that day in November, 1963, when the news came across the, the transom that this guy had been murdered in cold blood on the streets of Dallas, Texas. And that's that was like a wake-up call. We were all living in the Donna Reed show and leave it to Beaver until that day. And Dylan captured that in Murder Most Foul.
0: See, my daughter, who was, close course, the in of my generation, didn't get it. Of course not.
2: Neither would you know, neither would any of my daughters. They wouldn't understand. They would know, probably, you know, in their bones, instinctively, that something must have changed from the the era of father knows best and the era of Woodstock. Because the the country and the whole cultural fabric uh, changed from the the very bottom up, but they wouldn't be able to put their finger on what that was and how it had happened before JFK's assassination. I was a Boy Scout. I was an Eagle Scout. I, I believed in God and sooner of God and keeping the old Castro down but afterwards my whole world changed and I submit that yours did too
0: obviously there was no way
2: to and avoid and captured that
0: well he had a talent for doing that sort of thing does I think? I thought it was rather fascinating reading about how he, he writes down lines and like puts them in a box and pulls them out and <laughs> uses them like when things have changed. It's all just a compendium of lines he'd written and pulled out of the box.
2: <laughs> I love that song. It looks like my anthem.
0: Yeah, I used hey, to I, care, I, I, but things have changed.
2: Yes. <laughs> I, I can see. Uh, I can see Lebowski recording those lines.
0: The other one that I love is uh, "Tweeter and the Monkey Man," which is one of the great self-parody songs. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard. I can listen to that thing a thousand times.
1: Know, I'm I'm getting the feeling that I've been blessed Not to have heard any of this No,
0: you have missed out on one of the great Cultural experiences of all time Um, I After was, all, Tweeter and the Monkey Man were Hard up for cash uh, um, They, they stayed know, up all night selling cocaine And hash to an undercover cop <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, I wanted to talk about uh, The best of families
2: well, Alright
1: and your personal connection to the storyline
2: that, tu- that, that you tough you're going to go dark you're going to go dark and deep here well um, uh,
1: yeah
0: well yeah especially considering as you know uh, Dennis uh, I had thank God a almost identical experience as my daughter went missing
2: I know. I I, I read about that, bro.
0: Yeah, September 23rd. She said, Dad, I'm driving from Portland to Walla Walla. I'll be there in like two and a half, three hours. I'll give you a call. Mm -hmm. Nine days later, she still hadn't been found. Right. So you know what that's like. Uh, Any day, any minute, I was expecting the phone call that you got. I didn't get that call but you did and uh, it breaks my heart just to think about it Uh, and what is so tragic uh, as you say people with mental illness do not have the options for help in my daughter's case it was the fellow that attacked her uh, an untreated uh, fellow with severe mental illness Mm-hmm. Uh and that's why her diagnosis now is CPTSD, which is complex, which is one traumatic event right after another. No sooner right. does she get free from this situation, but he tracks her down and beats her within an inch of her life. Cracks her ribs. Yeah. And uh she winds up at a you know, halfway house somewhere in Walla Walla, Walla Washington. You know, it's just one thing after another. You go, how does this ever end? How does anyone get out of the spiral of continual trauma and get any treatment for it, any help for it? And uh, I don't know what the hell we would do about it. It's just like you hit a wall. And once, you, once uh, the person, whether it's the perpetrator or the victim, gets in a position where they need help, It's like it's set up to keep you down.
2: That's right. Uh,
0: And and in this country, the United States of America, for that to be the situation, to me, is the antithesis of how I perceived our country.
2: Well, You and I, bro, come from the same generation, and we come from—I mean, regardless of what the millennials might uh, believe—baby boomers had who had their heads screwed on right came from um, they they came from a, a point of view of hope. I mean, we were hopeful. We went in the 60s and we partied and ultimately what we came to the conclusion was that war was not a good thing and that Vietnam had to come to a a goddamned end and that we should not have these uh, stupid-ass colonial wars any longer. And, And that people really ought to help other people. That's kind of what most baby boomers that I knew believed in. You know, there's obviously a whole uh, retinue of other baby boomers who followed the Dick Cheney line of thinking and decided that what was most important was lining their own pockets. But most baby boomers, I think, at least the ones that I knew, were hopeful. And were looking to the government to actually do something. When it came to mental illness, something that we have traditionally slept under the rug, um, government was supposed to follow the JFK Jimmy Carter model and actually extend the hand to people who were delusional who were afflicted who had PTSD and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and all the other things that have afflicted, afflicted millions of people but that didn't happen and that didn't happen because Ronald Reagan became president of the United States, and he didn't believe there was such a thing as mental illness. So he wiped out all of the mental health, uh, the entire mental health system from coast to coast. And there was no safety net. If you were crazy, then, you know, you could live on Skid Row or go to prison or go to rehab maybe if he had the right insurance but that was it there was no other way that you could exist in our culture and sadly Reagan's legacy persists down to this very day every time i read about another school shooting or another mass um, um, killing at, at a shopping mall you get the same refrain first from the left left saying we've got to outlaw weapons and then from the right saying we have got to uh, help everybody's mental health and neither the right nor the left does anything further
1: well this show show is called true crime and what you're talking about is a true crime
0: yeah it it is a true crime and I it wish we. And unfortunately, the show was 15 minutes shorter today. Uh, thank you for being our guest.
1: Buy all of Dennis's books; they're excellent. Dennis, thanks for coming by. It's always a pleasure to hey, have you on the, the show. Hey, uh, say hi to your
0: peripatetic wife. Hey, <laughs> Earl. Magic Matt Allen and the demons of decadence coming up next at Live.com.